So friends, as we've already mentioned, yes, today, today is Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day. Um, as Pastor Cheryl mentioned, uh, for some, it's a time of joy and celebration. Um, it's a time of, of thankfulness. And for some, we also know it's a day of sort of mixed feelings. It's maybe a day that you might rather not be in church. Uh, it seems like people are happy around you and it's, it's hard, it's hard. Now, if you have mixed feelings about this day, if maybe this day sort of serves to highlight different losses in your life, then you're actually in good company because uh, the woman who founded Mother's Day actually had increasingly mixed feelings about it over the course of her life. And by the end of her life, she was actually going door to door to get petitions to like turn back Mother's Day. Isn't that so sad? Oh, no. There's drama in this day, and there's a couple of good reasons why. But however you're feeling, whether you're joyful or whether you're sad or conflicted somewhere in the middle, know that whether you're here in person or maybe listening online to this recording, because I think we're recording this, um, know that God, your heavenly parent, sees you. God has moved heaven and earth to be with you. So now, um, join me in this quick um, just prayer of centering. We've done so much wonderful things today. Um, been invited to worship, and now we're invited here to come to the word. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Now those who knew her said that she was a woman deeply defined by her faith. Throughout the 1800s, um, she held what they would call Mother's Day work clubs, and she would hold these uh, to help improve health conditions. She advocated for um, clean milk to be distributed instead of sometimes the, the tainted milk that would be sent out would cause children to be sick and die. And she really worked uh, to, to increase education and to help families in the rural area of West Virginia where she was from. And then when the Civil War came and as it raged around her, she and her Mother's Day work clubs would tend to the wounded soldiers on both sides. And after the war was over, she held Mother's Day friendship picnics where former enemies could come and recognize each other as friends, as brothers, as sisters. And she urged women of faith and those in her church and in her community to take an active role in promoting nonviolence and peace. Now, does anything about those work clubs sound familiar to you? Maybe the name? The name, um, oh, I'm not going to see it today. Oh, this is a low-tech Sunday. Okay, it's going to be here behind me. <laughs> yes, the day, Mother's Day. And actually, so this woman right here, the woman I've been talking about, her name is Anne Jeeves, um, Anne Jarvis. Anne Reeves Jarvis. And this is her right here. She's the one doing these clubs, promoting peace. And this is her daughter, Anna. See, so Anne and Anna, it gets a little confusing. And I'm like, you kind of look similar too. Oh my goodness. But Anna was a single woman. She never had children, never married, but she was deeply impacted by the life of her mother. And she's the one who began three, day, three years after her mother died. She held a memorial service in her church for her mother and all good mothers in honor of her mother. And that, that Sunday, um, May 10, 1908, was the very first Mother's Day. And after that, it kind of spread like wildfire. It took all over the place. But it came from this woman, Anne, and her Mother's Day friendship picnics and her Mother's Day clubs working for peace, for wholeness. Now, the text we're looking at today in Scripture, um, I don't know whether the woman is a mother at the time because the text does not tell us. But we're going to be reflecting on, on the story of a woman whose character and whose legacy continuing through her actions um, deeply impacts us today and can impact us 
her, her insight and her wisdom brought God's ways of goodness and wholeness to a really sticky situation that really needed some reworking. So um, we're getting ready to turn to 1 Samuel 25. Now, if you've spent much time in the church, chances are you've heard of King David. He's kind of a little bit of a celebrity. He's a big deal. He was Israel's best king. He's the one that sort of united all the different tribes into sort of one united kingdom. At the time um, that he was alive, Israel was just a, a tiny collection of different, different peoples, all descending from the same family. And they were surrounded by these more powerful nations that would come in and, you know, take their harvest and, and steal, steal people from their villages. It was like a really time of unrest. It was a dangerous time. So maybe you've heard of David at his best, David the king who unites, who brings together. Maybe you've heard stories of David at his best when he was just a little boy and he's there armed with just a sling and five smooth stones and he takes on this huge giant that's invading his land. Maybe you've heard of David at his best when he's strumming his lyre and writing music, writing psalms like Psalm 23, words that provide comfort and solace for millions of people over literally thousands of years. Maybe you've heard of David at his best. Maybe you've heard of David at his worst, when he sees Bathsheba and takes her. And then after it comes to light that she's pregnant with a child, with his child, he has her husband murdered. David at his worst. The story we're looking at today is David not at his best and not at his worst, but somewhere in the middle, where there's a lot of potential for good or for evil. It's a sticky situation. Sticky situation that needed a remedy. And that's where Abigail comes in. Now you and I, we all have sticky situations in our life uh, where things could go either way. We're not really at our best. We're not really at our worst. But who knows? Who knows how the day will end? (laughs) It could end somewhere, somewhere along the continuum whether it be a sticky situation at work, or whether it be maybe family drama, or with parenting, or grandparenting, or caregiving. Maybe it's a sudden health crisis that sort of upends your life, and you find yourselves in the middle of a sticky situation. Sticky situations, what brings these, all these different sorts of situations together are fact, are that they are situations where our best could come out, or our worst. So situations that require some reworking. And we're going through a series called Rework, where we're looking at stories in scripture that needed a little, uh, the situation needs a little reworking. There's something in it that invites us to change, to do a little bit of work, to let God do work in us so we can be equipped as disciples of Jesus. So this story today, I'm gonna warn you right now, it is a very long story, and we're going to read all of it. But to help you feel a little better, I'll have you know that I adapted all what I was going to say and made it a lot shorter. So overall, it will be about every other Sunday, maybe even a little shorter. So when we're reading through this and you're like, oh, dear Lord, when does it end? No, that's okay. You'll still get out of here at the the, good time to go eat some lunch. We don't want our lunch cold. So we are going to read this whole thing. And I invite you, um, if you are a visual person and you want to read along with me, Sometimes I need to be able to read along, otherwise I can just zone out. Feel free to read along with me. If you're a person and you want to be able to just envision it in your head, feel free to close your eyes. Um, If you fall asleep, maybe your your friend next to you will give you a little nudge later. (laughs) 
Feel free to close your eyes and envision this with me, because I'm going to be reading from the message. So it's a very vibrant story. And what you need to know about it in order for the story to make sense is that it's set in 1000 BC, so about 3000 years ago. This is very ancient times. The people of Israel, right, they're the small little people group. They're threatened. There is a king. They, they have a king, King Saul, their very first king. He has a lot of mental health struggles. This guy is paranoid. He's not doing well. And he's taken the best, best person in his, in his entourage. He's taken the best warrior he had, David, and he's set out to kill him. So David is on the run from Saul. It's a tough time for David. The other thing you need to know is that David has been anointed as king. He was anointed as king when he was just a young person. He's anointed as king by the prophet, but he's not acting as king. Instead, he's running around trying to avoid being killed by Saul. So that's kind of where we find ourselves. And along the way, you know, Saul's not doing well, so he's alienating people left and right, rightfully, and people are coming to David. So David has collected quite a collection of people that have come to him. It doesn't help as the passage begins, you'll notice the very first verse is their guiding light, their moral center. The prophet Samuel has died. So it's a story where there's sadness and unrest. In other words, some of my favorite stories are of sad stories. And this is where we find ourselves in the middle of a sad story. First Samuel 25. Samuel died. The whole country came to his funeral. Everyone grieved over his death, and he was buried in his hometown of Ramah. Meanwhile, David moved again, this time to the wilderness of Maon. There's a certain man in Maon who carried on his business in the region of Carmel. He was very prosperous, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep-sharing time in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal, fool, means fool, a Calebite, and his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and good-looking. The man, brutish and mean. So we have our beauty, we have a beast. David, out in the back country, heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep and sent 10 of his young men off with these instructions. Go to Carmel and approach Nabal. Greet him in my name. Peace. Life and peace to you. Peace to your household. Peace to everyone here. I heard that it's sheep shearing time. Here's the point. When your shepherds were camped near us, we didn't take advantage of them. They didn't lose a thing all the time. They were with us in Carmel. So ask your young men. They'll tell you. What I'm asking is that you be generous with my men. Share the feast. Give whatever your heart tells you to, um, to your servants and to me, David, your son. So David's young men went and delivered this message, word for word, to Nabal. You kind of get this picture in your mind? So here we go. David, uh, so here we go. He told it to, Nabal, uh, to, to, to David. David's young men went and delivered the message word for word to Nabal. Nabal tore into them. Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? The country is full of runaway servants these days. Do you think I'm going to take a good beer and wine and meat? There's a typo there. We'll figure out what it is. Meat freshly butchered for my sheep shears and give it to men I've never laid eyes on. Who knows where they've come from? David's men got out of there and went back and told David what he had said. David said, strap on your swords. They all strapped on their swords, David and his men, and set out 400 of them. 200 stayed behind to guard the camp. Meanwhile, One of the young shepherds told Abigail, Nabal's wife, what had happened. David sent messengers from the back country to salute our master, but he tore into them with insults. Yet these men treated us very well. They took nothing from us and didn't take advantage of us all the time we were in the fields. They formed a wall around us, protecting us day and night all the time we were out tending the sheep. Do something quickly, because big trouble is ahead for our master and all of us. Nobody can talk to him. He's impossible, a real brute. 
Abigail flew into action. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep dressed out and ready for cooking, a bushel of roasted grain, 800 raisin cakes, 200 fig cakes, and she had it all loaded on some donkeys. Then she said to her young servants, go ahead and pave the way for me. I'm right behind you. But she said nothing to her husband, Nabal. As she was riding her donkey, descending into a ravine, David and his men were descending from the other end, so they met there on the road. David had just said, that sure was a waste, guarding everything this man had out in the wild, so nothing he had was lost. And now he rewards me with insults, a real slap in the face. May God do his worst to me if Nabal and every cur in his misbegotten brood aren't dead meat by morning. As soon as Abigail saw David, she got off her donkey and fell on her knees at his feet, her face to the ground in homage, saying, my master, let me take the blame. Let me speak to you. Listen to what I have to say. Don't dwell on what that brute Nabal did. He acts out of the meaning of his name. Nabal, fool. Foolishness oozes from him. I wasn't there when the young men my master sent arrived. I didn't see them. And now my master, as God lives and as you live, God has kept you from this avenging murder. And may your enemies, all who seek my master's harm, end up like Nabal. Now take this gift that I, your servant girl, have brought to my master and give it to the young men who follow in the steps of my master. Forgive my presumption, but God is at work in my master developing a rule solid and dependable. My master fights God's battles. As long as you live, no evil will stick to you. If anyone stands in your way, if anyone tries to get you out of the way, know this, your God-honored life is tightly bound up in the bundle of God-protected life. But the lives of your enemies will be hurled aside as a stone is thrown from a sling. When God completes all the goodness he has promised my master and sets you up as prince over Israel, my master will not have this dead weight in his heart, the guilt of an avenging murder. And when God has worked things for good for my master, remember me. And David said, blessed be God, the God of Israel. He sent you to meet me. And blessed be your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and taking charge of looking out for me. A close call. As God lives, the God of Israel who kept me from hurting you, if you had not come as quickly as you did, stopping me in my tracks, by morning there would have been nothing left of Nabal but dead meat. And David accepted the gift she brought him and said, return home in peace. I've heard what you've said, and I'll do what you've asked. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so talk about a sticky situation. Right? We have here David. He's been, he's been hiding in backcountry, making sure nothing bad happens to the vast riches of this rich man who lives there, struggling to find provisions for him and his 600 men. And when he goes on a feast day, right, a time culturally of sharing gifts, his men are sent away hungry and insulted and not even a bag of raisins. Like, there's no party favors. You know, Nabal isn't like, well, you can't come to my party, but here's a party favor. There's nothing. He's sent away empty-handed. So Nabal's reaction to David's appropriately, you know, culturally appropriate request was contempt and scoffing and insulting. And Nabal here is, in the Hebrew, being, being kind of referred to as dog-like. And not like a cute dog, because they didn't have labradoodles back then, but like, like a, a mangy, you know, wild cur of a dog. It's just kind of growling and trying to protect what he has. He's acting very beast-like. And David's reaction to Nabal um, is, is also kind of beastly. It immediately goes into the, the fight-or-flight part of his brain. He went immediately into fight. He tells his, his people, strap on your swords. You can just imagine it. They all get ready. They all get ready to fight. They all get ready to go out and kill every one of those people in Nabal's household. The sun's going down because the festival begins at night. Now, if you were to zoom out and look at this passage in Scripture, on the, the passages on either side of it, 
1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26, you'd see David acting from his core. In each of those those chapters, he has a chance to kill Saul, the guy who's hunting him down. And in each of those chapters, he chooses peace. And it's something about this situation right here in the middle. He's reactive. He's reacting with violence. He's on his way to make one of the biggest mistakes of his life. He's on his way to act from his worst self. So in this situation, there's so much ego and reacting. There's so much potential for violence. There needed to be a remedy. Every sticky situation needs some kind of remedy. And if you can picture in your mind, David and his armed men, they're on their way to the Nabal estate. Nabal and his crew, they're off getting the harvest party started, the sheep shearing party started. The beautiful and wise Abigail is on her way too, quickly on her way. She hurries out into the valley of the shadow of death. Friends, God has a tremendous capacity to provide a remedy for sticky situations where it feels like there's no good outcome. Just because you can't see a remedy yet for yours doesn't mean it's not on its way. I remember uh, a number of years ago, Dan and I had a car um, that needed a new odometer. Ours broke right before we had to get our, our, um, like a, a safety check or something. And so we weren't going to be able to, to get it passed unless we got this, this part for an odometer. So we brought it to a place that fixed odometers not too far from here, actually. And um, we found ourselves a few weeks later without an odometer, with like our car in worse shape than it had been, and out of $700, which is a lot of money especially for us at the time when we were expecting our first child and trying to save up, not deplete already small savings account. I was so mad at this guy for cheating us, yet whenever we talked to him to try to get him to rectify the situation, it was clear there was something very, very not right with him. He wasn't well. Each time we'd see him and go check on the car, he'd have bruises around his face or he'd look like he just came from a fight. He was not well. There were things in his life, forces beyond his control, and he was struggling, which didn't mean we were going to give him any more money, no more money. (laughs) Once we figured out what was happening, the money stopped. (laughs) But I remember being so mad at him, I just wanted to yell at him, what's wrong with you? Are you on drugs or something? Why can't you just get your life together? I was so angry. I was angry that we had lost this money. I was angry that we were ready to have a child, and we had less money than we started with. I was angry that we had an old car that wouldn't pass a safety check. And I remember calling on God. I went and I prayed and I said, God, you've got to fix this. I don't want to spend a cent more on it. And as I was saying that, I'm like, I need a remedy. I kind of felt something inside me go, mm, you can spend a cent more. So I was like, I don't want to spend more than 50 bucks. <laughs> I don't know, a cent and a 50 is just sort of what came to me. I don't want to spend 50 bucks. And later in the day, as Dan and I were talking, um, we had the idea of, like, you know what, why don't we ask, see if there's anyone in the community. So I put out this call on Craigslist. Back when Craigslist was a thing, oh my goodness. This is before Yelp. I couldn't even leave a bad review for this guy. My goodness. <laughs> yes, I'm older than I look. Um, so here we are. You know, I put out a call on Craigslist and we get a message. Someone in Kaava has an odometer. They've been working on a car, the same make and model didn't need the odometer, they were using spare parts or something, they just happened to have it. And they said, you know, if you want to come by and give me 50 bucks for it, I'll put it in your car for free. We were like, yes, thank 
thank you. <laughs> when can we get there? Oh my goodness, Kava, it's farther than we think. We are there though, in our car with no odometer. <laughs> so we went there, it got fixed. There was a remedy for our situation. And later on, Dan and I met with a, met with a guy who had swindled us. We said, you know what? We don't know what you did with that $700, but we forgive you. And Dan prayed with him. I remember them crying. I don't know what happened to the man or our money. I know that in this sticky situation, just sort of the in and outs of our lives, right, needing a car repair, that God provided a remedy for us. God provided a way forward. I didn't do anything I'd regret. We're able to see God provide for us. Friends, our sticky situations, your sticky situations, I don't know what it looks like, but God does. What's amazing is that even as it looks like it's all colliding, God has a remedy on its way. So moving to number one in your notes. As David approaches to fight his own battles, Abigail's words recall him into his true vocation, someone who fights God's battles to bring peace to their people. David's approaching to fight his own battle, right? A battle born of ego and reactivity. And Abigail's words, they're prophetic. They recall him to who he is, to his moral center, to his vocation as king. They recall him from being a person who fights any old battles out there or fights his own battles to being someone who fights God's battles. I'm going to talk about that just for a second. You see, our text tells us Abigail is beautiful, right? She is wise, she is quick. But there's another layer to her that we discover in Jewish history, and that's that she is considered a prophet, one of seven prophetesses in the Old Testament. She's listed in the Talmud. Because what she says to David, it's wise, it provides a remedy. The words she speaks are also deeply prophetic words, speaking to the future of David's life, to his vocation as king. And I have to say, you know, before, like when I was doing study on this and before I found out she was a prophetess, when I was just reading her speech to him, I was a little annoyed by it. I'm like, oh my gosh, all of these like lords and master, like she's really laying on thick because of course she doesn't want to die. I'm like, why do women have to do this with men with big egos? Ah, you know, I was totally frustrated. <laughs> And I did a little bit more digging, and I realized with her living into this, this, um, this prophetic moment, she's not just, you know, being extra humble or, or trying to massage his ego, but she is acting like he's already king. You see, at the beginning of our, pro of, of our, of our text, the beginning of our story, we find out that Samuel died, the light of Israel, the guiding light, the prophet. Samuel died, but you know what? God's prophetic work did not die. It is carried on right here in this story through Abigail, who speaks to the future of David's life and career and vocation, who speaks to David, calling out the core of who he is. In this moment, we don't need Samuel anymore because we've got Abigail. And there she is, calling out this truth, calling out the best. Did you know that actually there's a phrase that she uses in there that is used in Jewish funerals? Whether you're a Reformed Jew or whether you're Orthodox Jew, this phrase she uses is used. And it's um, the phrase, she says, know that your life is tightly bound up in God's bundle of life. And just this picture, there's, she's actually a theologian because did you know one of the reasons why um, later, later centuries of Jews came to believe in an afterlife or a resurrection? It's because of this phrase, this idea that your life is tied up in the bundle of God's life. So how can you die? 
How can death be the end? So she's prophetic here. She's doing theology. And she's saving the day. Friends, who have you heard the voice of God through? When has someone needed to correct or remedy your course of action? When has someone needed to be part of God's remedy for you? So you're feeling in your notes, when has someone needed to correct or remedy your course of action? When has someone needed to be Abigail to you? You see, here she says, you know, you're not just to fight your battles, you're to fight God's battles. And for David, fighting God's battles meant learning humility as a leader. It meant him learning a way that was different than Saul's, a way of leadership. They didn't just ostracize and try to control and try to eradicate people who disagreed with him. Fighting God's battles for David meant listening to all the different people in their community so they could come together as a united kingdom. Fighting God's battles for David means that it was less about him and more about the survival of their people. This people group that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah that they and their children and their children's children would continue. That was God's battles for David, not his own Friends, when has someone needed to correct you? And when have the wise actions of another brought you nearer your true self and God's work for wholeness in your community? When have the wise actions of another brought you nearer your true self, God's work for wholeness in your community? So you move to number two in your notes. Just want to remind you that there's a lot of stories in scripture that feature women. We don't always talk about them, but they're there. And oftentimes, women in scripture, they're doing things that we wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, I go back and I think of just in the book of Exodus, there's Shipra and Pua, right, sort of begin the book. There's two midwives who are very unlikely heroes, right? They defy the orders of Pharaoh. They refuse to murder um, the Jewish babies. They resist the empire. They resist Pharaoh, and through them, God provided the remedy to save an entire people from slavery through these two women who did what they weren't supposed to do. We have Jochebed, who gives birth to Moses. He's able to live, but she's got to hide him. And she sends her baby away on a river. That's not what you'd expect. River sends him right to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter, who sees it as a Hebrew baby, is like, oh, I'll adopt him. (laughs) That's amazing. These women, they're not doing what they'd expect. Pharaoh's daughter's not doing as she would have been told. She's not obeying. Uh, Pharaoh, her father, all these people, they are totally acting in ways that they're not supposed to, and yet they're doing the will of God. Terza and her sisters, they successfully advocate to be able to get an inheritance from their father, even though the ancient laws of their day state that only sons can inherit land. They successfully advocate, and God blesses them for it. All these women in just a couple books of the Bible, acting out of their supposed place in society, and yet they are doing the right thing, and God blesses them. So number two in your notes, Abigail challenges gender barriers and expectations of women in response to God's sending. So God sent her, but in order for her to follow God's sending, along the way, she has to challenge some gender expectations. She has to challenge some expectations of women challenges these gender barriers. So how does she challenge these gender barriers and expectations of women? Well, in your text, it tells us right there. I mean, this is also 1,000 BC, so 
For those of you that think we live in a patriarchal leaning society right now, can you just imagine how it was like 3,000 years ago? Women in Jewish society did have more rights than in neighboring countries, but it was still a man's world. And in this man's world, Abigail, if you look at her text, she goes against her husband's wishes, right? He says, don't, don't give them any food. She, she gets a ton of food. <laughs> she like loads up the donkeys, like get more. Like, oh, he'll get drunk, he won't notice. She literally just like loads up the donkeys. So he says, no food. She's like, yes, food. Then she doesn't even tell him what she's doing. Here he's ready to start a party and like, where's his wife? She's just, she's doing her own thing. She's saving the family. Right, she goes to advocate for her household. This is something else that also a man would do, man to man. And here Abigail is advocating for those entrusted to her care. And lastly, she confronts the man who will one day be king. She confronts him. Friends, that's a lot of expectations of women and gender barriers she's challenging. So my question for you is, whatever your gender, what expectations have been put on you by others? What expectations have been put on you by others? How have you responded to them? If you're feeling in your notes, that word is expectations. What expectations have been put on you? And have these expectations ever impacted your response to God? Have they held you back? How? They don't need to. You don't have to be limited from being part of and participating in God's remedy for the sticky situations in your life or in other people's life. Right? In this situation, Abigail is brought, is brought into knowing what's going on by a little messenger, a little shepherd boy who tells her what's going on. Sometimes we might be more like the messenger boy than Abigail, and that's okay. Sometimes we know this situation is way too big for me. I need to go get help from someone who's wise. That's okay. We don't all have to be Abigail all the time. Sometimes we can be the little messenger boy. Help! (laughs) And then we need to know who are the Abigails in our life. Who can I go to? Who can I ask for help? Who is a wise person who's going to help me to see into the intricacies of this moment? Because friends, God has a remedy for you, for what ails you. It might not look the way you expect, But God's remedy is on its way. In Hebrew, um, the name Abigail means her father's joy. That's what her name means, her father's joy. She's a woman who, you can imagine, probably made her earthly parents very proud. I know she's also a person who made her heavenly parent very proud. Bible commentators remind us that in her we see a picture or type of Jesus, God's son. Abigail rides into the place of danger on a donkey. She presents an offering for Nabal's trespass. She asks David to let the blame of what's been done wrong fall upon her alone. She declares the coming goodness of the kingdom. She brings peace in God's wholeness. And later on, if you keep reading into the next chapter, you'll find she even washes the feet of those entrusted to her care. Friends, may we be like Abigail. May you be like Abigail. May God empower you and fill you to act in those sticky situations that need reworking. Empower you to act in ways that speak to your center, your moral center found in God. May Holy Spirit empower you to act in ways that bring life and wholeness to those around you. Let's pray. Loving God, thank you for the life and witness of Abigail. Thank you for her peacemaking. 
And Lord, thank you for the for, for Anna, Anna Reeves Jarvis, who was a peacemaker. And because of her, we have this day where we remember and thank God for mothers. Lord, may we be instruments of your peace. And may your remedy come through for us in ways that will bring us to wholeness, to thankfulness, to joy. In Jesus' name, amen.